0: This week, we talked about the different stages of business as a freelancer with our guest copywriter and entrepreneur, Jacob McMillan. Jacob is currently the number one U.S. search result for copywriter, for the search term copywriter, which means we should all team up and up our SEO game and challenge his number one spot.
1: We'll come back to Jacob's interview in just a moment, but first you should know that this interview is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground. That's our incredibly valuable membership for copywriters who are done figuring out things by themselves and want to surround themselves with an awesome community of copywriters. It includes our perfect proposal training, our persuasion course, our new sales course, plus more than 20 templates and dozens of presentations all designed to help you make progress in your business. You can learn more about it at thecopywriterunderground.com.
0: Now let's get to our conversation with Jacob. Jacob, we would love to just start with your story, a very detailed story of how you got into copywriting. Do not leave anything out.
2: Okay. That's a, I I think it's a relatively fun story. So I, I think, I think you have to sort of start back when I got into sales and unlike a normal person, my start in sales was door-to-door sales in college. I got roped into, I got roped into doing it one summer. I needed a lot of money. It sounded a little ridiculous, but the numbers made sense to me. So I was like, "I'm just going to do it." Uh, and I ended up like, I made enough to pay for like three years of school in 16 weeks, or not 16 weeks. Yes, 12 weeks. And I. I really enjoyed the sales process. I enjoyed sitting down with someone, talking to them, hearing about their needs, uh, kind of connecting what they needed to the solutions I was selling. Um, there were also a lot of things about kind of direct sales that I, I hated. Um, so after college, I graduated with an accounting degree. Only thing I knew was I'm not going into accounting. So I was like, what's next? Uh, kind of started to you know, discover the online uh, marketing world, SEO, stuff like that. And, and then I, I, I fell into copywriting and realized it was everything I loved about sales minus everything I hated about sales. And I never really thought of myself as, as loving writing, but it had always come, you know, fairly easily. Um, and, and once I started, you know, applying it in directions I actually cared about versus, you know, the writing you do in school, um, I realized I actually enjoyed it. So it it just seemed like kind of this this great convergence of, you know, thing something that I was relatively talented at naturally, something that I was learning to enjoy, and I quickly kind of tapped into just how lucrative the demand was for it. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the perfect combination of of things in terms of a skill set to build your career around. So I just kind of ran with it, and uh, yeah, um, started with like. Blog writing, uh, and then kind of went into like you know landing pages, and so I just I just went full speed on on the freelancing end of things. Did that for a few years. Um, I I kind of applied. I think doing that door to door sales job, my mentality towards sales was very volume based, very hustle based. I, I I knew like you, you know you got to knock on enough doors before you find someone who's gonna who's going to say, yes, it's not, it's not about batting 90%. You know, if you bat 5%, you're you're crushing it. Um, And so that, that, you know, helped me do pretty well in freelancing pretty quickly. Did that for, you know, four or five years and then started thinking, Hey, wait a second. If, If all these people are, you know, making, they're paying me so much money for this writing, that must mean they're making more off of it. So I should try to make more off of it through my own businesses. So kind of started, experimenting with that and building some side businesses and and then that's kind of you know I, I still I still take on freelance all right I still do freelancing work but I've kind of mostly started to transition into the you know building some of these side businesses including you know the one I have through my website where I help other copywriters kind of follow my freelancing path and uh, yeah that's kind of been the last maybe three three years that I've been doing some side businesses on that and um, yeah it kind of all connects back to the that those original skills of writing and selling and uh you know been doing kind of overall the career's now been about nine years and it's still a blast so i think uh, i don't know if it's a mixture of, of luck or just progressively eliminating other options that that i didn't like but i'm super glad i found this career and that's where i am now
1: sweet so let's maybe kind of um, block out little chunks of of that path and talk a little bit about them so going back to the whole door-to-door sales gig it's it's funny that you mentioned that because we've talked to quite a few copywriters who have had some kind of door-to-door sales experience or you know even retail sales experience but a lot of people who sort of you know learned how to do the sales thing you know one-on-one however that was. So, uh, what was it about you that made you so good at it? Cause so many people wash out after a week or two and, and can't do sales. Why did that work for you? And you know, what were your biggest takeaways from that experience?
2: Yeah, I think maybe the two things, the, the two biggest things, the first was the persistence. I had, I think the, my, my first through my third week, maybe my fourth week, I had like full on panic attacks every day. From 11 a.m. to 12 p.m., and most of it, I think, was kind of wasn't really around like what was actually happening in the field. It was the fact that I knew I was committed to the full 12 week period I was going to do this, and so I felt trapped. Like the the day to day was tough, and I knew I wasn't going to quit. And knowing I wasn't going to quit created these like panic attacks, which is kind of obviously a whole other side of things. But it was like kind of coming in just like pre-committing, I, I, am just kind of one of those people who, if I commit to something, I do it. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you go into something and your mentality is no matter what, I'm figuring this out, you just tend to, you tend to, you know, sort of brute force your way past the things that trip up a lot of other people who kind of are looking for an exit strategy. Um, so I think that was probably the first, first big piece. I don't know how healthy that is, but it is what it is. Uh, and then on the, on the back end too, when it comes to the actual sales process, I actually didn't like they, the people I was working with, the organization I was working in, they tracked like the stats on everything. Um, and my, my actual percentage of, um, getting in and talking with people was very low. Like not a lot of people would let me in the door to talk with them about what I was selling, but my close rate was through the roof. Um, and I think it came down mostly to just listening. You know, like once we started, I knew what I needed to get to at some point. But instead of trying to rush to it or trying to sell, I just asked, you know, asked them good questions and let them sell themselves. You know, just sat back and and listened uh, and let them spend as long as they wanted to talk about the challenges they were feeling. Because, I mean, as as much as as much as it's great to try to, uh, you know, agitate the, the, the issues that people are dealing with, if they can do it themselves, even better, you know, so that's the nice thing with direct sales, you can just, you can just ask the right question and let them spend, you know, 20 minutes agitating their own problems. Um, and then it's just a matter of, you know, if, if, if you have something, if you're selling something that has a great product market fit, then it's just a matter of, you know, just very clearly showing how it's going to solve the things that they just spent 20-30 minutes agitating. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't rush that. I would give it, I would, I would let it take its time. And I was very, I was very you know, I, I, part of the things I hated about sales was how emotionally invested I'd get in any particular conversation. I mean, it, it was kind of a two-edged sword in the sense of people could feel that I really cared and that I was actually genuinely interested in the challenges they were facing and genuinely looking to see if what I was selling could help. And the upside of that is that you know when you are able to communicate that authenticity and make people feel seen and like their you know their problems are are are, are real and uh, important, then you know they're they're more likely to purchase from you.
0: And maybe you already said this, Jacob, but what were you selling?
2: Sort of like educational handbooks. The company was called Southwestern. You might have heard of them, but they basically it was kind of like these. It, the way that people, the way that schools are teaching, um, various curriculum across the decades changes. And so it was kind of designed to help parents sort of bridge the gap between how they learned stuff when they were in school and how their kids are being taught it now. Um, you know, cause kind of the, the classic little, uh, anecdote they would taught that they, they, they hammered into us in the sales training was like, you have, you know, you have the, the dad who's been an engineer for 40 years and can't help his elementary school kid do a math problem because they're using this like cube method or something, you know? Um, and so, you know, basically just kind of bridging that gap and helping, helping parents transition their knowledge of how to tackle, you know, these, these various concepts from the old way it was taught to the new way it was taught. I
1: hate the cube method. Yeah. <laughs>
2: it's a, it's a real pain point. I like, Oh my gosh. I will buy that
1: book any day. Yeah. yeah.
0: Sell sell Rob the book, sell him the book. He will buy it. Um, well that, so your audience is mostly parents. Um, what, what did you learn from that time about parenting that prepared you for your own parenting experience years later?
2: Oh man. I don't know if I learned anything about parenting from that, except for maybe like just that, so many parents genuinely care about their kids you know and just just absolutely genuinely want the best for their kids um uh yeah (laughs) i mean you you, it's crazy because you'd have you you'd come in you you come into certain neighborhoods that were like really run down and you'd have kind of some people think oh like you know i'm not going to sell anything here but you can, you can walk into a house that's worth 50 K or a house that's worth 5 million. And oftentimes you're going to get the exact level of, of, you know, care and love for the kids that translates into what they're investing, you know, their available money in, um, which I, you know, I I hate to frame it from kind of like a, a, a a monetary view, but that was kind of, you know, at the time that was my lens. And I think, I think if there was any takeaway on the parenting side, it was just that, you know, love for kids has nothing to do with, Money.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. And um, when you got into copywriting and made that transition, it it almost sounds like it was really easy for you to just kind of take off in the copywriting freelance space. So what were you doing to attract your first few clients? This sounds like sales. The sales side was easy for you, but um, were you pitching, you know, clients? Were you doing something else to build your authority? What did that look like?
2: Yeah, so it started I mean, and, and this is what, you know, I teach my own students is I I think reliably when you're first getting started, it has to be outbound. I like, it's the only reliable way. It definitely has been true for me. And, you know, um, through all the students that I've worked with out just getting, getting out and getting in front of people, putting the numbers in, that's how it was for me. It started with, um, before I really kind of had the mental model of freelancing, it started with you know, I was just kind of looking for part time jobs to fill up my schedule. So like I I'd get on Craigslist and I'd look up jobs connected to things that I might be able to do. And that's how I landed my first job, which was in uh, my first sort of client who was an SEO. And they were basically having me, you know, write articles on pest control and <laughs> was uh, used car repair and all sorts of, of uh, you know, local, local SEO type stuff. Um, and so for me, I was just like, okay, I have, I have this one person, they're paying me kind of a fixed, a fixed amount. Um, so let me go see if I can find more people that look like this through Craigslist, which is how I'd found them. Um, so like every day I would just hop in and see if there were any new postings. Uh, and then I kind of started to discover that, Hey, Craigslist isn't the only spot for this, started finding some of the different job boards. And so I just, you know, every day I just open up. Various places that had a potential for new listings, and look through and see if there's anything relevant, and and pitch it if it was. Um, and I I didn't really I wasn't really on the clock to make any you know particular amounts of money at the time. So at first it was very it was very passive, very casual, just kind of a, a habit that I would you know look for any place a potential new gig could be posted, um, and then maybe. Probably like two, two years into this, um, I, you know, I added a few, like one or two other clients, but it was still like one client who was, you know, paying probably 60 to 75% of, of what I was making on any given month. And we got to, I was, we were about four months away from uh, my wedding, um, which, you know, I was paying for. And so, um, and that client kind of just out of the blue dropped off uh and so you know a lot of the a lot of the the budgeting and bills that had gone up to that point depended on that client being there so that's kind of that really like lit the fire to actually go go real hard with the pitching and so i just i just started sending off you know i just started pitching everything that moved you know was probably sending out a few hundred pitches a week um at one point i got super annoyed that i wasn't hearing back from any editors even on like free guest posts so I started like writing full articles and sending them out, uh, even though you know, it, it, was, it was a lot of work. Um, and that kind of, you know, over, over about a, a course of a month doing that, I landed, a, uh, I landed a gig writing for Crazy Egg, which ended up opening a lot more doors down the road and was even a good paying gig by itself. I landed a, a website copywriting project that ended up paying about 14000 and then another one that paid 5000 which at the time, I think the most I had made uh, prior to that because I was working very part time at the time was maybe like, you know, maybe 3k in a month. Uh, so it was had kind of jumped up to, you know, landing over 20k worth of gigs in about a month or two of this really heavy duty pitching. And I think that was the moment where for me, I knew this is like a long term career. Like at that point, I knew if I ever need money, all I have to do is send out some number of pitches, and I'll have money. Um, And, uh, and so I think that's when it kind of mentally it transitioned to me from just being something I was doing to make some money, you know, kill some time while I was focused on other things to this is a full time career. And then about a year later is when I went full time.
1: I definitely would love to talk a little bit more about that pitching it's kind of been a theme of a few of our recent episodes on the podcast but i I also heard you say that you went to school studied accounting and then you didn't want to be an accountant so uh, you know in at risk of sort of losing the flow of where we are I am curious like <laughs> why did you why did you study accounting not wanting to become an accountant and has that like change the way that you look at your business because of your background with numbers, with you know books, bookkeeping, you know being able to to do the debit credit thing. Does does that give you a unique view on a copywriting business that maybe a lot of the rest of us who came from say humanities or some other place, you know, that what we would uh, look at our business from?
2: Yeah. Um, so I, the answer to why I chose accounting, I think up until that point. I mean, I, I think a lot of us do this. Like I, I was just living my life on default, you know, like you graduate high school, you go to college, you pick a major, you know, you don't have any clue what you're actually going to want to do. So you're just picking something. Um, for me, I, I was kind of, you know, business school just seemed like the practical choice. Um, the and then kind of within business school, accounting and finance both were sort of interesting to me they were kind of the, the two more prestigious majors um, and accounting. Like we had like a, like a top 10 nationally accounting program at university of Georgia. Uh, it was kind of what the business school was known for. And it was supposed to be the really hard major. Um, so I think that for me, it was just like, what's going to, what's going to look the best on the resume, what's going to give me the most options. And I, you know, kind of when it came down to it, um, if, if, If I had wanted to go the public accounting direction, it would have been a lot more difficult going that direction with a finance major. If I had wanted to go into finance with an accounting major, it would have been easy. So I was like, well, you know, this option gives me this, this route gives me one more option. (laughs) So it it was a very practical, very uninteresting, uninspiring choice, like many of my life choices. Um, and, uh, you know, in the end, how, how much of an edge has it given me in, in the numbers department? I'm not sure. Um, I will say it was very easy for me to do my taxes for like the five years that I did them myself. Um, so that was definitely a bonus. Um, and I think, I think maybe it's, it, it might, it, it's hard to know whether this was due to the major or just due to me being a little more of an analytical person. But, you know, I, I definitely when I talk to even other freelancers who are more experienced than, than I am, um, I definitely seem sometimes to feel like I have a better grasp of personal finance and kind of long term, you know, even just like leveraging tax advantage savings accounts and stuff like that, you know, stuff that's not like has nothing to do with getting an accounting major. It's just more Maybe I'm, maybe I'm less intimidated to kind of look into some of those directions because I'm aware of how straightforward it, you know, it is. Um, So that would probably be the biggest thing. Um, And I think too, I don't, this might be kind of an accounting thing, but just being very, being very metrics focused, you know, um, one thing I do with my students is when I ask them like, Hey, what, what's your goal? A lot of times writers tend to have very vague goals uh, or very vague milestones they want to hit. so i'm all I'm always trying to transition you know concepts into numbers because uh, I think going after a clear number, especially a number that's fully within your control, is what you know has the most impact on forward growth and business growth.
0: So to get back to the pitching, I wonder if there's a way like what your perspective is on marketing over time as a freelance copywriter. And, you know, the initial stage is really like outbound, like you shared. And that worked well for you and works well for many um, pitching clients, reaching out to them. When did you feel like you kind of moved into the next phase of marketing and putting yourself out there where maybe you focus less on sending cold emails and more on (laughs) speaking on podcasts or something else? Like, can you kind of break that up for us and describe your perspective on that type of authority building in the marketplace?
2: Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to spend the rest of their life pitching. (laughs) So that was definitely looking to move to that next phase, I think is is definitely important. For me, um, it was through finding some sort of recurring distribution, which for me was SEO. Um, I would say maybe... Two years into me being full-time, I got like real serious about trying to learn SEO. I'd been kind of like, I'd kind of been flirting with it a bit um, and even ranking for some things, but it was like I'd I'd identify a term I thought ranking for would have a big impact and then I'd I'd rank for it and it would be like meaningless. Um, So I was like, okay, I, I need to actually get serious about this. So I really dove into trying to understand keyword research um, and things of that nature. Uh, and then once I would say that took about a year of trial and error, like very intentional. It it was almost like I learned more by osmosis than by actually anything clicking. Um, and, uh, and then I started, you know, getting some SEO results. I was ranking for like professional copywriter or expert copywriter or something like that. And, And then website copywriter. Um, And they get, you know, those terms brought in less traffic than you might expect, but uh, but it was enough to start getting some good lead flow in on a month-to-month basis. And then at a certain point, uh, when I was probably getting the most leads through, you know, the most copywriting leads through my site, it was like between thirty to forty a month. And at that point, you know, there's just no reason to pitch because you know you're getting these warm inbound leads, which are kind of higher quality anyway. So. Um, But I've seen people, you know, SEO was the route for me. I've seen people do this through, you know, just building a massive audience on LinkedIn. I've seen people do it through just like really strategically connecting with people on Twitter uh, constantly. Um, There's, you know, you can do it like if you're kind of focused around building an email list, you can do it sort of the JV route of kind of doing little partnerships with other people who have lists of. People who are you know in, might be interested in hiring you, lists of entrepreneurs, things of that nature. Um, so I've seen it work in a lot of ways. I think I think every copywriter, if you if you work long enough, you get to a point, some sooner than others, where referrals will take off a big chunk of that, um, just co- almost organically. Uh, but at the same time, I. I don't think there's any truly passive lead gen, even when we talk about SEO, these other things, there's always some sort of active ongoing work involved. Um, And, uh, and I kind of equate it to, you know, if any fortune 500 company told their sales team to take a month off, you know, the the company would just crash and burn in a month. Uh, And I think it's the same with freelancers, like whether, whether you're doing cold outreach, whether you're doing sort of branding, marketing, or some combination of the two, you know, the you kind of just have to accept from the beginning that it's going to be a monthly part of building your business. And so whether, whether you kind of do the outbound early, which I think is the faster results or find some sort of channel that you want to commit to ongoing to get that more inbound eyeballs, the, the key is just that you're doing something every month.
1: Yeah. You know, when you mentioned earlier, as part of some of your pitches that you started actually sending out full articles, I'm guessing that's not something that you would recommend to people, you know, that you were, you are coaching or talking to now, but what was the result of that? I, I mean, in some ways I, I almost like the idea because it stands out. It's really different. And, you know, if it, if it gets results, you know, doing those things that don't scale early on in your business can be pretty effective, even if you can't keep doing it, but, you know, tell us a little bit about how that worked out and, and why you stopped.
2: So that led, that led to me getting, there's this, there's this website that's pretty big in Australia called SitePoint. That led to me getting a a publication on SitePoint. And that was actually the, the funny thing is um, up until that point, like most, most of the stuff I was getting paid for was like from working with like an SEO client who wanted to, you know, get a link from an article out of your byline, like, so kind of you are guest posting on behalf of the client. Um, this was one, that's what I was expecting, you know, to happen here. I was only expecting to make, you know, maybe 20, 30 bucks from a piece on that. And they responded like, Hey, we loved it. Uh, you can bill us at our standard rate of 150. And that was kind of the the light bulb of like, Oh, I can actually kind of get paid for the writing itself. Not, not just the fact that I'm including, you know, a link to the brand in my byline. Um, and so, uh, so that kind of that was kind of a revelation for me. Less not necessarily because of the specific tactic, but just kind of how it how it played out. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think I think I got I think I maybe sent out like six or seven full length articles and got like two of them accepted. Uh, which at the time, you know, I wasn't even getting a response from other pitches. So it was it was uh, I I felt like it was a win. Um, you can also to kind of, I think once you hit a certain point where you really know what a lot of the, the businesses you're pitching are looking for. Um, my friend, Aaron Orndorff, he, he would do a lot of that when he was, you know, when he was still freelancing, he would, he would pre-write an article that was based on a trend. Uh, and he would he would write it specifically with the first brand he was going to pitch in mind. But he would do a type of article that if that first brand said no, he could sort of retool it a little bit, and you know, and then uh, like look to sell it to another brand. Um, and so I, I think that's you know, I think it's a viable strategy. I think, I think it's better for more experienced writers, just because a lot of you know, a lot of newer writers, you just you just aren't good at blog writing. Um, it takes a while to get good at it, and so you know, writing a whole bunch of of crappy articles, it's never practice is never a lost cause, but it's definitely, you know, if you're looking for a more, it's definitely not the most efficient way. Um, I think, I think pitching like writing out headlines uh, and pitching like, you know, two to three different headlines uh, to any individual client is kind of probably the, a good mix of it just being a completely, you know, uh, a completely copy paste pitch and doing a full article to pitch them. It kind of, middle grounds it a little bit. Uh, and I had the most success doing that strategy. Um, but at the end of the day, it's never it's never a bad thing to, to practice the craft you're trying to get good at.
1: Yeah, sure. That, that makes sense. Were there other things at this point in your business that you were doing that wouldn't scale today that you know, were just getting you in front of the right clients or you know, helping move your business forward?
2: So I was doing a lot of guest posting and I, I didn't care if I didn't make any money from a lot of the writing I was doing. Uh, and that you know, at the time, some of those were like connected to someone, you know, paying me to throw a link in my byline. Uh, a lot of them weren't. I just wanted to get my name out in kind of the marketing space, and a lot of those ended up translating to other gigs. I think, I think at a certain point, you sort of get to the point of diminishing returns when it terms to when it comes to having your byline out there. Um, but when you're first getting started, um, you know, I definitely. I definitely think that's a non-scalable thing that can have a big impact for so many reasons too. You, know, you, you can get your byline out in front of you know, potential clients. If you're, if you're guest blogging in a, in a niche you want to target, you, know, you are connecting with editors in the space. Uh, ideally, editors who can help you become a better writer by critiquing the work you're sending them and, or, or just making it better. And you can kind of evaluate what they change to make your, your content better. But it was like it was to the point where I had one client who I was working with telling me that like my name had come up while their their editor was talking with an editor from some other marketing blog at a conference, you know, like so like if you're if if you're like doing so much of this that your name's starting to pop up when editors are talking, like you're you're on the fast track to be getting a lot of paid work, um, and so yeah, it's just kind of like it, it doubles as a networking thing. It can you know if, if you do a really good job and like something you give them for free performs well, you can always follow right back up and try to upsell them on a paid gig. Um, So I I just think that's, if we're talking about non-scalable stuff that's really effective for newer writers, that would probably be the number one.
0: Okay. And then, yeah, I was going to ask you what else you would recommend today, you know, 2021, it's getting to be really competitive in the copywriting space as more people move into freelancing. What else do you think copywriters need to do today to stand out in a crowded marketplace, especially if they are new, they're a little less well-known other than what you shared already around, you know, getting published um, and creating guest articles?
2: I think, you know, one place where I would defer from kind of the prevailing advice that I see a lot for newer writers is I don't actually think you need to like niche down in your first year or two if you come into the field with a specific, you know, niche that you really want to target, then great. Um, I think it can, it can definitely help. But I see a lot of new writers really get hung up on like, trying to find a niche. Um, And to be honest, I don't really think I don't really think having niche expertise helps you a whole lot until it's been stacking for like, three, four, five plus years. So to me, like, I, I think, you know, especially when we talk about saturated places where most of the the niches being recommended are, are very busy and do have a lot of established experts. I think coming in and just taking, you know, a wide range, anything that interests you pursuing opportunities in it, taking a wide range of gigs um, and kind of letting, letting the niche and even the writing type itself sort of come to you, find the thing, you know, find the Avenue that you most enjoy where the opportunities are opening up for you. Um, and then, you know, if if you if you wait 2 years to kind of really let let the niche come to you and then, you know, really specialize in it, you you're not going to lose a whole lot of ground in terms of your career trajectory. Um and you might find, you know, you, you might end up finding certain avenues that aren't in really crowded spaces because as as, you know, as as crowded quote unquote as the the freelancing market is becoming, it's all relative. Like we're we're talking about you know, a hundred percent year over year e-commerce sales growth. They're like the, the supply hasn't even, in my opinion, isn't even close to catching them with the demand. So I think there's, I think there are hundreds of, of industries and niches and specialities that are, you know, still uh, people are struggling to find, you know, great writers in those niches. Even, even in my, I'm in a, in a fairly saturated one, which is kind of the, the B2B marketing, you know, blog content and, and copywriting. And I have clients coming to me who I, I who are like really wanting to do more work with me because they've been, you know, sampling out lots of other writers and are still struggling to find a good fit. So um I think it's kind of, you know, let let the niche come to you. And then once you do, I think prioritizing prioritizing mastery over income earlier on is really advantageous. That's another thing I see a lot of is sort of as much as I agree with the idea of charging what you're worth and there are people being underpaid, I see a lot of, you know, especially in the beginning stages, I see a lot of writers who are sort of rate chasing. They got paid kind of more than their writing was really worth this one time. And so every future client, they're trying to land at that rate instead of more looking to drive demand to their work and price based on demand. Um, And so That'd be kind of the other thing is, you know, like I would much rather, and, and I taught, you know, I, I I go through this process with my students, I would much rather see them work on a hundred projects in their, you know, first few months that are paying 50 bucks a project than land like two 5k gigs where they only get two, you know, two practice rounds. Um, so that that's kind of another thing is just, you know, that's definitely something I've done in numerous places throughout my career is. Any place where I felt like, hey, this is going to give me this sort of a gig or this sort of a direction is going to give me an opportunity to increase my mastery, I'll take it, even if it's a pay cut. You know, um, and I, I definitely recommend that if if you're in the newer stages. You know, if you're if you're five years plus, ten years plus, you know, uh, then probably the 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 mantra of charge what you're worth, don't accept the you know the low ballers is is much more applicable to where you're at.
1: Yeah. Anytime you're talking about mastery and trying to get better at stuff, you're talking my language. So, you know, I, I <laughs> anytime you're investing in yourself, this is why, you know, Kira and I talk all, all the time about joining masterminds and, and you know, surrounding yourself with people who can help you grow. Like I'm, I'm all about that. So um, 100% agree, you know, with with a lot of what you're saying there.
0: Let's jump in here and talk about one or two things that stood out to us. So Rob, what did you take away from this conversation?
1: So there's a few things here that uh, I started making notes about. Number one, you know, going back to his early experience with the sales process and just Asking questions, and you know that that was kind of his secret. You know, we talk to copywriters all the time who are, you know, saying, "Okay, how can I sell myself to my clients? I'm about to have a sales call. What do I need to say?" And our advice is almost always just ask questions. Ask questions about the business. Ask questions about how they find customers. Ask questions about what they're doing in their marketing today. You know, what are you know the hot buttons? What are you know the the features, the benefits, all of that stuff? And and you're always asking questions to try to understand the business and ironically, when you do that, when you're, you know, asking all the questions about what you don't know, it shows the, the prospect that you're interested in their business, that you're trying to figure out the best ways to help them. And it, uh, in, as opposed to selling yourself, where you're talking about all the great things that you can do, it actually is more effective at selling them on you just because again, you're showing interest, you're learning about the business and you're starting to identify some of the problems and the things that they need help with.
0: Yeah, I love that idea of allowing your prospect to agitate their own pain points. And even though we're not necessarily doing direct sales here, but we can sit with a prospect on a sales call and Zoom, and we can take as long as we want on those calls. I think oftentimes we might rush those calls and feel like we have to get them in and out in 30 minutes, but we can give ourselves space and time just like Jacob did in his direct sales position So that we can cover all the questions and allow the prospect to really kind of agitate their own own pain points and realize that you ideally are the best solution.
1: Yeah. And I think another thing that stood out to me, you know, the question that I was asking about, you know, doing things that don't scale, um, you know, Jacob was obviously doing stuff that you can't do for everybody in order to grow your business. You can't write an entire article for every potential client that would come along but when you have more time than you have clients, when you have more time than you have projects or more, more time than you have money, you need to use that time in order to do things that stand out. And so it's impressive when he's talking about how you know, he would write the whole article doing spec work, which is not something that we would usually recommend, but uh, you know, doing these things that don't scale in order to stand out. And I think that there are other ways that we can do that too, that we need to be aware of you know, when, when we do have a six figure business or, you know, when you do have enough clients coming through that, you know, they're taking up all of your time, you can't spend your time doing that stuff. But again, when you have a lot of time and not a lot of money projects, clients, it's smart to do those things that uh, you can't do at other times of your business.
0: Yeah. And that's why I like thinking about the different phases of your business and, and marketing and how you put yourself out there, because there are these really distinct phases, just like Jacob mentioned how he started pitching, and he focused heavily on on pitching for at the beginning, and that's not something that is necessarily. I guess it's sustainable, but most people don't want to continue pitching. Um, but you kind of evolve out of that eventually, and then you get referrals, and then you can focus on something else. Which he then went and focused on SEO. But it's there's no one right way or one way to do things as you start marketing and evolving. I think that's why it's important not to compare yourself to all the other copywriters and content writers out there because they might just be in a different phase. So while they need to do something else, maybe they need to focus on pitching, you may be past that stage and need to focus on building your authority in a totally different way. So I think it kind of all goes back to just kind of knowing what works for you and where you are in your business growth. And not comparing yourself to others.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why it's kind of fun to interview copywriters on the podcast from different stages of their business. Because, you know, when we're talking to somebody in their first year, they're doing things very differently than, you know, people who have built six figure businesses and are talking about, you know, building agencies and the products that they've developed. And so it's, um, I, to me, it's interesting to see all of those phases kind of play out with the people that we get to talk to every week.
0: Yeah. So anything else um, stand out to you?
1: So maybe one other thing, um, you know, Jacob mentioned the niche question, and this is something again, that comes up a ton. In fact, you and I were talking this morning and I think you said that you're tired of talking about niching, should we niche or whatever? But I I think as he recommends, uh, that it's not always the best thing to choose a niche right out of the gate. You don't necessarily need to launch your, your copywriting business without a niche. Um, but there are things that choosing a niche you know, does help you do, you know, when you're talking about a particular niche that starts to attract people who are in that niche, you're able to demonstrate that expertise. And so while it is, you know, okay to launch without a niche, it is okay to explore several different niches to see if one's a better fit for you than another, or if you, you know, connect with those clients. Um, he is right. You don't necessarily need a niche to succeed at the beginning, but it can help you focus your business as you start to grow. And you, you, like you were saying, go through some of those other phases in the business um, you know, when you get to phase three or four, you oftentimes almost always would, uh, you know, niche into something or other, whether it's, you know, a, a particular industry, whether it's the kind of deliverable that we uh, create or whether it's the kind of problem that we solve for our clients.
0: Yes. And I have nothing to add. I think you covered it. And I'm going to take the week off from talking about niching.
1: Awesome. So let's go back to our interview with Jacob and ask him about starting a content agency. If I'm remembering this right, Jacob, you also started an agency uh, at kind of at this point in your career track. Tell us a little bit about you know the thinking that led to that and why you also ended that experiment.
2: Yeah. Um, so basically, what happened there was I had a client that I had just I had gotten I had gotten them so big that just to continue growing the blog, I needed more people. So I sort of had to create you know, to kind of tackle this bigger budget and vision, I had to create a team. Um, And so I went through the process of creating that team. And then, you know, once you have the team, you know, initially, uh, the capacity of that team is was higher than than what the one client needed. So I started looking to add some more clients and started kind of building a small agency, mostly built around, you know, a a contract work team. Um, And I did that for I think it was about A year, maybe a year and a half, Um, and I just kind of got to the point with it where I realized kind of quickly all my time was going to like editing, you know, like hiring and editing, Um, and it just wasn't fun, (laughs) you know. Like at at this point, I really do enjoy writing. Uh, I really do enjoy creating, Um, and so for me to be in a situation, you know, even even though it was fairly lucrative, to be in a situation where I was spending most of my time. Kind of trying to, you know, hire, train, manage uh, and edit work um, just, you know, wasn't appealing to me. I I started experimenting too with, uh, I brought in a project manager to help with that, to see if that would kind of solve it. Um, But I realized too, at a certain point that you can't really build, you can't really build a business around contract workers like freelancers. Um, I love freelancers. I am a freelancer we are not the most reliable of individuals, you know, <laughs> and, and not to say we can't be, and there aren't very hyper-professional freelancers, but just as a general rule, like if you're trying to build a, a 10-year company, you know, you you bring in a freelancer, you find a great freelancer who you can bring in at 10 cents per word. You know, if, if they're a good freelancer, they're going to be charging 20 percent, twenty cents per word within the next six to 12 months, you know? So it's just kind of like, um whether it was through you know you go through the process of bringing a writer onto the team and then three months in you can't really afford them anymore or you know just kind of you know there are there are a lot of freelancers who just aren't aren't, aren't great with deadlines and things of that nature so it's just kind of one of those things where I realized if I was if I was going to continue growing it I really needed to transition into like full time hiring um, and I kind of just I even with the even with the freelancers i realized i didn't like the anxiety of having other people's livelihoods on on my mind all the time of like hey like you know if i lose this client i'm going to need to like i'm at that point i'm not just hustling for my own income i'm hustling for you know five people's incomes 10 people's incomes and I realized like that's not why I got into solopreneurship and freelancing to have other people's well-being on my conscience. So it was kind of between that and not enjoying the day-to-day work of managing and editing and things of that nature. I just realized agency running was not for me.
0: Yeah. And I love this conversation because uh, we are – Rob and I are possibly creating an agency together. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to find more ways for Rob and I to partner
1: um, Rob coming at you from every direction.
0: What else else can I do with Rob? Let's do this. Okay. So, um, what would be your advice? I mean, to someone maybe like me who is interested in building the agency model based off what you've learned. I mean, clearly it sounds like it wasn't a good fit for your your goals and what you enjoyed. um, But for someone who wants to do it, what advice would you give them? Maybe based on like, what didn't work for you or what you would do differently if you were to jump in again?
2: Yeah. Um, I think, I think the, the biggest thing I'd recommend is having a real specific vision of what you want your personal involvement to be and making immediate full-time hires for the positions that for the key uh, objectives and roles that you don't want to do. Um because I, I, think you, I think you can make the, f- the freelance contracting model work if you're not necessarily wanting to go to full-time writing hires, uh, but you really want to have someone who wants to handle all that, who's good at it, who's a good editor, uh, you know, kind of fully invested in that. That would be, that was probably the, the single best hire I made was bringing in the project manager. It just, you know, they, they were fantastic to work with. Um and it made a huge difference. It just, it didn't change kind of some of the, the other things that I didn't like about the uh, the experience. So that would be the big thing. And then uh, obviously that's kind of the fulfillment side. Then obviously you need, you know, you need to have a really clear understanding of how you're going to be growing the lead pipeline to facilitate, you know, the, the uh, roller coaster of, you know, client inflow and outflow as you build the team. Because I, I think that's, even, even just kind of from the copywriting end, one of the things I've noticed a lot in talking and, and getting to know entrepreneurs over the years is, you know, in sort of a service-based business model, you sort of deal with this, like, you're constantly in this state of, like, not having enough, like, not having a big enough team to fulfill, like, you know, the amount of work you have. Uh, or not or having too big of a team for the work you have. Like there's never like a perfect equilibrium on that note until you just get massive. Um so kind of, you know, pre-understanding that challenge going in and having a clear idea of how you're going to tackle that would would probably be my biggest recommendation.
1: So Jacob, let's talk about where you are in your business today. Uh I know you're not doing the same kind of stuff. Obviously, you're not doing the agency thing anymore. Um, but I think, uh, you're not writing for clients quite as much as you do. You, you have some programs. Tell us a little bit more about where your money comes in and, you know, how that all breaks down.
2: Yeah. So about 18 months ago now, um, I like, I stopped taking on new freelance work for a season and I was like, I'm going to give myself 12 years to just try to grow, you know, grow my own blog and email list, uh and I was planning on making like a freelance copywriting course. Um, that was something that, you know, just over the years, a lot of the real popular courses, uh, that had been around since, you know, I, I was in the field in 2012. Um, I just was constantly hearing poor feedback on, you know, some of these really super well-known brand names. Um, and with the big piece being that they didn't really teach how to land clients. Um, and so that was kind of something I'd wanted to take some time to do for a while. So finally I was like, Hey, I'm, you know, I, I, we actually, we found out my second, second child was on the way. So I was like, I have about nine months here to potentially start something new. And after that, it's probably going to be like a decade before I even want to think about doing anything new, uh, which, uh, I was definitely, I was definitely right on that end. At least, you know, the, my predict, my productivity went off a cliff when that second kiddo came around. Um, so I spent like nine months, you know, just working on creating lots of content, and building my email list, and and pre-sold that course and started building that course, and and uh, it ended up being super well received, and you know the the email list is, has grown a lot. So that's kind of become probably you know the biggest the biggest part of what I'm doing right now is working with students in that course, and then we also kind of have a we have a community as well called Right Minds. That's um, it's exclusively for writers who are kind of more in the intermediate plus stage of, of running their business. Um, and so between those two things and, you know, creating, creating content, that's kind of my, my main business at the moment. Um, I also, uh, do kind of quite a bit in terms of, um, investing, um, and, um, working right now, there's kind of a new company called copy AI. Uh, you might've heard of it. it's their, are utilizing GPT-3 to help entrepreneurs in particular kind of do, you know, work out the baseline for, for new copy. Um, so I've been kind of working with them as well. And uh, and then I've, I've, I've uh, bought some websites on the side that were like low revenue generating and then working on in improving their SEO and kind of, kind of a, it was kind of an alternative to real estate play, like, you know, something where had a pretty stable income stream coming in and, you know, had a much higher um, much higher revenue to investment uh, ratio versus like you know purchasing and renting um, and so I've been experimenting with that over the last two years and have kind of some of those going on the side and just anything where it's like hey how can I how can I create sort of reusable assets through the writing skills I've developed
0: Okay I want to ask two questions I'm gonna kind of hog the the mic for a little bit So first one, is productivity because you mentioned productivity plummeting after your second child. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm expecting my third in June. And so I'm just assuming I'm just going to like, yeah, just crash and burn. So <laughs> I'm i, I I'm always looking for ways to kill my productivity. And a great and time to start way. an agency
1: too, by the way.
0: You know. Yeah. So we're <laughs> going to start an agency and I'm going to leave Rob in the business by himself. So um, I would love to just hear how you are juggling that as far as Schedules and like work times with two young children, so that's question one. And then I'll wait on question two.
2: <laughs> okay, so I mean, I think the for, my first answer would be I'm not well. <laughs> um, the this definitely the last. Let's see, he's he's about nine months old now, so this has definitely been a very very challenging nine months, and I don't know that there's any good way to approach it. For me, it's been kind of um it's been kind of finding like what are what are the smaller things that I can commit to. Um so like I noticed kind of right off the bat, like my ability to focus in writing long form was gone. Just absolutely gone. Um, and so instead I was like, well, why don't I do 10 minute podcast episodes and I can post one of those a week and that will be my My ongoing, the thing, you know, the maximum thing that I can commit to in place of these 40 hour, you know, uh, work blog posts. Um, so just having something that's like, Hey, this is not ideal, but it's something that I, you know, it's something that I can actually commit to. That's been big for me. Um, and, uh, and then too, I think just like, I think being realistic, um, there was a there was a time where I was trying to like force my old my old work schedule into kind of my new circumstances. and and once I stopped trying to do that, I kind of realized that if I could even just find one or two hours a day where I could really focus in without interruption, um, that I could actually get a pretty good chunk of what a night, what I needed to get done done in that time period instead of maybe my normal process, which was to be, moderately focused for six hours you know um so that was kind of a big thing for me just not not trying not trying to force any sort of unrealistic milestone or expectation into kind of my new environment and just build build around what was available and find find the opportunities in you know in the new circumstance in the new season um, and just kind of look for those ways where I could still be consistent, even if realistically the output was not significant. Like I, at this point, I've had virtually virtually zero return on you know the effort I've put into the the podcast and YouTube episodes. Um, but it was it's something that's building and that's going to potentially you know be a recurring payoff down the road. And it was it was all I could realistically commit to in the short term.
0: Okay, I appreciate that. That's that's great to hear. And second question, I love this idea of investing in other websites, and that's something that I have not done. Um, I wouldn't necessarily focus on SEO, but I could see where you know we all have our unique expertise. We could add and purchase it, and and um, you know give it an uplift. So what what are some basics? You know, maybe some basic resources for someone who's also interested in purchasing other business websites and turning them, flipping them?
2: Yeah. So I, I would, I definitely would not consider myself an expert at this point. I'm still relatively new to it. Um, What I opted to do um, was, was go through, there's a site called empire flippers um, and you pay more to get the sites through them, but they do a pretty extensive vetting process, have a pretty in-depth kind of escrow based transition process. So it was like, I, I felt safe with what I was going to get um, there. And so then for me, it was just about kind of just being patient and looking looking for the sites, you know, w- waiting for sites where I felt like, you know, I, I looked at the site, I looked at how they were monetized, and I just sort of compared it to businesses I'd worked on in the past, my understanding of various spaces, and, and just sort of waited for the opportunity to say, here's something that feels a bit under-monetized, uh, or here's something where they're bringing in some money through content, but the content could be a lot better. Um, and so like you said, looking for ways that I could, you know, add my unique expertise to uh, to those sites. Um, I don't necessarily have any, you know, specific resources that I could, you know, or or, or tips. It's, it really depends on how you're gonna improve the site. You know, um, if you're someone coming at it from like, an affiliate marketing angle, you know, your the criteria you're going to use and the steps you're going to take will be drastically different than if you're kind of looking for ad revenue, or if you're looking to sell products or things like that. But just kind of approaching it on a very case by case basis and being patient and just looking for something where you really feel like, you know, hey, I can I can make a move on this Um, uh, would probably be the best thing I can recommend.
0: This site is so cool. I'm getting lost in all these businesses I can buy. For...
2: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it cool? It is a cool it's so place.
0: cool. Yeah. We for should sales. list the Copywriter Club and just see how much we could get for it.
1: There are a couple of sites that are like it. I, you know, Being in the SaaS space and, and having done a startup, I've played around in there before and seen some of, these, some, some so of the businesses cool. that are you know, for sale there. So J- Jacob, you also mentioned that you've been working with uh, an AI tool, AI client. Uh, let's talk about that for just a second. Are you on board with the idea that AI is going to take away all the copywriter jobs in the world? You know, three years from now, or you know, what is that going to look like?
2: Not at all. Uh, I I think I don't think it could be any further from the truth. I kind of like. I actually, I think if I think if enough, if the right iterations can be created, I think the that the AI GPT three in particular can be utilized as almost like a productivity tool for copywriters. Um, Because to me, and, you know, obviously, everyone has their own unique process. But for me, one of the most time consuming parts of copywriting is sort of the brainstorming phase where you're trying to find just different ways to say stuff, trying to find different phraseology, just trying to find anything that's going to spur ideas and and cascading ideas for different ways of expressing concepts expressing them concisely you know things of that nature for me that's always the most time-consuming part of copywriting and it's so easy to get in your own little like mental rut where you're like you're you know it just your ideas sink into this one channel and it's tough to break out of it um so with, you know, with GPT-3 and kind of the way copy AI is doing it, and I'm, I'm helping them build a tool specifically for, for value propositions right now. But the idea is basically that you can kind of put the core idea ideas in, and then, you know, this AI is going to spit out a bunch of just raw, you know, ways of saying things um, connected to this concept. And you can just, you know, just like you do when, with your own brainstorming, you don't really you're not really looking to brainstorm the perfect idea that'll hit the final draft. You're just looking for little seeds. You're looking for pieces that you can then build around and create into something polished. And I think that's what where GPT-3 excels and has the potential to excel, even in terms of being a tool for writers, is just in kind of that, that vein of, of idea generation um, of, of spinning out new ways of saying things new phraseologies things like that that you can then incorporate into your own copy um, the, the the biggest reason that I don't think that I don't think writers have anything to worry about with GPT-3 and, and when I say writers I mean like good writers um, the in my opinion the the real low end of the market was always vulnerable and was you know was often just kind of being cannibalized into other things. And it wasn't, you know, so definitely the, the low end of the, of, the, of the spectrum, people who just aren't good writers and just the demand is so high, they're still managed to make, you know, to, to land some work. That might be vulnerable. Um, but for people who are being brought in for companies actually making money to write copy that it's actually going to be read by an audience that they paid to bring to the site, um, it's just... it's never going to be able to create the core and strategic substance that goes in that way. That's what makes writing so special. Um, You know, I I think, I think there's definitely some, some formulaic aspects of copywriting that will be able to be implemented by, by AI. Um, But in terms of just the, the finished product, there's just so, there's so much that goes past the formula. There's so much even in terms of identifying the core value and substance that needs to come into the writing to actually make an impact on readers. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely not worried even being kind of at the forefront and working with some of, you know, these tools that are being used by actual entrepreneurs in some cases, even to put coffee on their end website. I just, I definitely don't see it being a threat as a general rule.
0: All right, Jacob. So I'm leaving this conversation feeling very energized to be a copywriter. So thanks for that. Feeling excited about an agency and excited about flipping businesses on Empire Flippers. So I feel like yeah, you've given us a lot to think about and look forward to. Where can our listeners um, find out more information about what you're up to? Um, and along with that, what is what are you doing next that we should know about?
2: Yeah. So I'd say. Uh... If you head to jacobmcmillan.com, um, you can find my blog, which has, you know, several hundred thousand uh, words of free content there. Um, I have a, the, the podcast I mention every week. I try to do like a 10 minute YouTube video slash you know, podcast episode on, on writing, marketing and freelancing uh, to get the flex in there. If you Google copywriter, you'll find me at the top result. Um, and then
0: uh, wait, uh, what?
2: <laughs> yeah that's, I, I guess i, I never uh, I never slipped in my party track at the in our episode yet but um, that's yeah that's what I've been mostly working on the last year is getting rankings for you know copywriter website copywriting, uh, email copywriting copywriting books I think, uh, yeah, I
0: think you're right you are top of the list that's crazy
2: yeah I think uh, I think you get you're I think I'm jostling with one of your guys's articles for copywriting books. Uh, we like, we trade places uh, one and two every few All days. i right. <laughs> to break out the big guns. We're going to take you down. To the oh,
1: wow. Uh,
0: Game on, Jacob. I don't know anything like- about SEO, but I'll do it.
1: It also, I mean, it depends a little bit, I think, on uh, search settings or whatever, um, because, you know, uh, Google's personalization sometimes will drop things onto people's um Search results that are related to them, right? So it may not come up totally. first for every single person, but uh, yeah, you're right. up
0: first we're, for me, Jacob. You're we're top definitely top. taking you down. Everyone <laughs> listening should take down Jacob.
1: There it yeah, is. Yeah, by, by linking, <laughs>
2: linking to the CopywriterClub.com from
1: your own blogs, your own sites. Yes, please help us take him down.
2: <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that, there's, there's not really anything at the moment, any particularly new projects, just kind of focused on, you know, creating creating the best training I can for people trying to grow their freelance writing businesses. And that's about it for the time being.
1: That's awesome. Well, thanks, Jacob, for coming on, sharing, uh, sharing your wisdom. Maybe we need to have you, you know, pop into the Copywriter Club group and share how you Attained the number one position at some point.
2: <laughs> totally. I'd love to. <laughs> thanks uh,
1: thanks for coming in and just you know, talking about your business. We appreciate it.
0: That wraps up our interview with Jacob. But before we go, it might be worth talking about how Jacob started his agency and a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as I think about this, I mean, obviously we said, that, you know, we're thinking about doing this ourselves. There are definitely pros and cons here. You know, when we talk about starting an agency, you know, when you have people working for you, whether they're contractors or employees, now you're suddenly responsible for the income. As Jacob mentioned, you're responsible to make sure that that, uh, work comes through and that, you know, they've got things to do. And that's a kind of pressure. That's very different from the work that we do when we're working one-on-one with clients. Uh, and you're responsible for coaching them for, you know, copy chiefing, uh, for editing or proofreading, and while some of those uh, kinds of roles can be assigned out to other contractors, that stuff still has to happen. And when you do build an agency, it changes your job very dramatically from one working one-on-one with clients to create content or copy to one where you're you know, managing a team that's doing those kinds of things for your clients. And so something I think that's pretty important uh, to, to understand. And a lot of the people that we've talked to on the podcast who have started agencies have backed down and, you know decided that it's not the way to go. So it's definitely not right for everybody, but it's right for the right people.
0: Yeah. We talked with Jamie Jensen about her agency and how she built it up. And then, and then she kind of shut it down and pivoted in her business and is doing really well in the new direction of her business. So I do think there's a lot to the agency space that um, probably a lot of us don't think about or realize until we're in it. And so I think it was a good conversation with Jacob and he offered some great advice about figuring out what role you want to play and being really clear about what you want to do and what you don't want to do in that agency because I think that's that's what happens is you end up kind of stuck doing something that you didn't really go into business to do anyway. So as we're kind of slowly brainstorming what that could look like for us, we are taking our time and, and just kind of experimenting and thinking about it because it's not worth rushing into without a plan. And I know for me, I love copy chiefing. So, f- like to me, that that would be wonderful to copy chief and sell new clients into the agency. But um, without that clarity, it could get really messy along the way.
1: Yeah. So again, I, I'm definitely not slagging the idea of starting an agency. Like, if agency is the goal for you. Uh, it's, you know, the, it's something that, yeah, build into that and start to develop that. And if it's not, if you're the kind of person that just wants to write for clients and, you know, work that one-on-one, have those personal relationships, then, uh, you know, there's, there's other ways to build a successful copywriting business that maybe gives you more of what you're looking for. So, uh, those are the things to think about there. And then I know you mentioned this in the introduction and, you know, we kind of buried it to the very end of, of the interview, but I mean. His ability to show up as number one for the term copywriter is pretty freaking amazing, in my opinion. Uh I, I'm not exactly sure what, what Jacob did to to earn that, but I'm jealous.
0: Yeah, I think it's really impressive. And I, I kind of love that he le- left that till the end of the interview too to share that. And the, you know, competitive <laughs> the competitor in me wants to challenge him and take him down, which I think is is a fun challenge. But yeah, that's really impressive. So well done, Jacob.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then maybe finally, you know, some of the other investments that he's making, you know, the the empire flippers um, site that he mentioned and, you know, buying sites and doing interesting things with them. Again, this is something that we really haven't talked about on the podcast before, you know, when we've talked about the different kinds of things that copywriters can do as far as, you know, developing products or the different services, the different packages that they can offer. Um, but, you know, resurrecting old sites like what he's doing or finding sites that have, you know, poor SEO, but a, um, a, a really good uh, sales opportunity and fixing the copy, you know, making the sales copy work better. You know, that's, that's something that copywriters can do. And I know people who have, you know, purchased sites for, you know, a thousand dollars, $1,200, and then have flipped them later for, you know, multiples of six and even seven figures. And so, um, at some point we should probably have a podcast that goes into how people do that and, you know, what they're doing and how they're applying those copywriting skills. But I am glad that he mentioned that because it got me thinking about things that we haven't actually talked about before.
0: Yeah, it was a really fun new conversation and I probably tell during the conversation I'm so excited about it because it just is such a great reminder that there are so many different possibilities out there for us as copywriters and um, and what we can do and other businesses. So it's definitely something I would like to revisit at some point and buy one of those businesses on that
1: site. Yeah, you said we should put the Copywriter Club up for sale just to see what we could get. I, I actually got an email from somebody this morning offering to buy the Copywriter Club for $2,000. So um, we, wow. have, we have our, uh, our starting <laughs> bid, a starting bid for, for our- and I
0: am very curious to find out who that is and how they came up with $2,000.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: Um- Cool. Well, We'll we'll consider it. We'll think about it.
1: (laughs) So we want to thank Jacob McMillan for joining us to talk about copywriting and his business and all of the things. Uh, If you want to find out more about Jacob, you can visit his website where you'll find several hundred thousand words of free content at jacobmcmillan.com. And that's uh, his last name spelled M-C-M-I-L-L-E-N.com. And you can also find his podcast there. Uh, It's called Write Bytes. It's also at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And finally, if you search for him, you can find him on YouTube talking about marketing, writing, and freelancing. And I guess actually really finally, we did mention that just type copywriter into Google and you'll see him at the top or near the top of the page.
0: That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave a review of the show. To learn more about our programs like The Copywriter Underground and The Copywriter Think Tank Mastermind, visit thecopywriterclub.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
2: Copywriters coming together to help the world write better
1: copy and make more money kira
2: and rob's copywriters club can make you lots of money listen